Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, July 14th. I'm Andrew Walworth. On Thursday, the Secret Service ended their inquiry into who brought cocaine to the White House earlier this month without naming a single suspect. But that hardly seems to have satisfied Republicans who have called for further investigation, including drug testing of the White House staff and more involvement by other agencies, including the DEA. Also this week, FBI Chief Christopher Wray appeared before the House Judiciary Committee, where he was grilled on a number of hot-button issues. He denied shielding the Biden family, called theories of FBI involvement in January 6th ludicrous, and said accusations of bias against Republicans on his part were, quote, somewhat insane. And both major political parties are looking forward to 2024 with a special eye toward the increasing availability of absentee mail and early voting. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the key to victory may be voter turnout. And when it comes to taking advantage of new voting rules, the GOP is playing catch up. Joining me to talk about all this are Tom Babin, president and co-founder of Clear Politics, Carl Cannon, Washington bureau chief, and Steve Miller, writer at Clear Investigations. So, Tom, the Secret Service said they fingerprinted and DNA tested the White House cocaine. They looked at video footage. uh, But at the end of the day, it sounds like they had about 500 potential suspects and they have no idea who among them could have been the culprit. So are you satisfied? Case closed? uh, Or will there be more to this? Well, let's just say I'm not surprised. (laughs) How about that? Um, You know, someone made a good point. Like, If this was anthrax, if this white powder had been anthrax instead of cocaine, would the Secret Service just be like, well, throw their hands up and say, oh, you know, guess what? We couldn't figure it out. Sorry, closing the investigation. Of course not. Of course not. You mentioned someone had called for the White House staff to take, you know, drug tests, which is if the administration was really interested in getting to the bottom of it, that's a step they could take. But uh, they don't seem interested in getting to the bottom of it. The Secret Service certainly doesn't seem interested in getting to the bottom of it. And the media doesn't really seem interested at all in getting to the bottom of it. So I suspect this is going to be the end of it. I mean, similar to the the Supreme Court leaker case where everyone just kind of said, well, you know, gee. I mean, it's amazing when the, you know, when the government wants to find someone, whether it's the guy who leaked the classified documents online. Remember that guy? And they showed up at his door. They found him in like 30 minutes or something, an hour, hour and a half. They were at his door. I mean, the government has vast powers and the White House is one of the most surveilled buildings in the world. And so this is just a, this is a matter of lack of interest, lack of will, in my opinion. Well, Steve, I don't really think of the Secret Service as being an investigative body per se. Somehow this comes under their jurisdiction. I don't really understand that. But could another investigative body like the FBI or the DEA take over and could they find out more? Or, I mean, are there other tools they could use to uh, bring to bear on this? Sure they could, but so could the public too, because if this investigation is closed, any records um, relating to this investigation, to this probe would uh, would be public. And so if it is officially closed, I don't know. The only thing they would try to withhold on is um, national security. But I'd like to know exactly what steps they took and and what kind of investigation it was. Will there be a public report? I mean, does there have to be a public report? It's kind of a blip, but but Congress could call for it. But I guess rather than wait for the politicians, maybe we should do it ourselves. (laughs) Carl, what do you think? My guess all along was that some workman left it there. They've got these construction crews coming in, 
some poor guy who's driving in. You're West blaming Virginia. the coke on the construction worker. West, Come on, kid. Well, I, I, I understand they they would be subject to drug testing as well. But go ahead. Well, hold on, because Tom's the one compared it to anthrax. If you have a more benign view of it than I do, I'm not. I didn't compare. I just said if it were anthrax. Well, are you going to let me make my point here? <laughs> not if you keep misrepresenting mine. I assumed it was one of these guys coming in from West Virginia to. You know, they're remodeling the White House basement where, where our um, our reporter sits. Um, and he had to stay awake. You know, it's a harmless, no, victimless crime. And I wasn't too worked up about it. But the problem is, is that you've got all these crimes committed by the president's son, Hunter Biden, who and he was there two days before. And the FBI, it shows you what the downside is to these kid glove investigations the Justice Department did because nobody believes that they really pursued it. And they can't even get their story straight, the Secret Service, on where the drugs were found. They initially said it was in a library in the residence. Then they said it was in this area where people come and go. And, that you, and if you put your belongings that you don't want to go through a magnetometer. That's the problem with having these investigations being politicized is nobody has any confidence in them. I've heard two really dumb ideas. The first was by Marjorie Taylor Greene, who suggested that they drug test 500 people. Uh, if you have... 500 people, by definition, you don't have probable cause. And, you know, you think maybe she should do a remedial course in, in the Fourth Amendment. The other idea I heard that was just recently, it was a couple of minutes ago, is from my friend Tom, comparing the cocaine to anthrax. So if the if this was anthrax, they'd, they'd be right on top of it. Tom, there was anthrax and it killed people in the Capitol and the FBI did investigate it. And what did they do? They framed the wrong guy. In an investigation led, by the way, by James Comey and Robert Mueller, the government ended up paying $6 million in damages to some poor schlub who had nothing to do with it. Uh, Comey approved, and Mueller approved this fake science, these sniffing dogs uh, who supposedly alerted on this guy, this poor guy who they singled out, Nick Kristoff, New York Times, identified playing like amateur sleuth. So I guess I don't have the confidence in the federal government's investigative powers, notwithstanding that they showed up on that hacker's door the next day. Well, it shows they were determined to to hold someone responsible, even if it was the wrong person. They didn't just say, oh, well, you know, we can't find it, so we're going to just get a close investigation, right? I have a feeling if it was a construction worker, if it was someone who, who uh, just a poor schlub, you know, like like you or I, Justice would be applied. That's kind of the way things have gone, that that the elites get away with stuff that uh, the average American would not get away with, right? Would not just be able to, you know, chuck a gun in a garbage can and, uh, <laughs> with, you know, as a having lied on, on your uh, registration permit, uh, saying you weren't a felon and, you know, just get a slap on the wrist and go that like that doesn't happen for most people in America, but it happens for some. And that, I think, is also part of the problem here. Steve, do you think we'll get to the bottom of it? And if so, how? Probably not. It'll blow over. I mean, it, like I said, like I, I was thinking, it gives rise to these uh, lunacy like drug testing. Um, I'm not sure what that would accomplish. Um, cocaine leaves your system in 48, 48 hours. It's water soluble. So you wouldn't uh, be able to catch anybody red-handed, white-handed, whatever. And so I, I, you know, I, it's probably going to pass and uh, it'll be one of those things that just as well that, I mean, remember, you know, 
Jack Ford smoked dope in the White House. I don't think anybody, you know, that was back in the 70s, of course, but I don't think anybody's still really worried about that. Hey, Steve, when I was in college, I was ushering at the Wolf Trap Farm Park, which is an outdoor center for the performing arts outside Washington. One of Ford's sons was smoking in the theater, and it's an outdoor theater, but it's made of wood, and it had burned down twice. And so I was sent in to tell I said, and I walked in right in the middle of this performance. I said, what are you doing, buddy? Get, get that thing out of here. He tries to hand me the cigarette. And I said, no, you take it out. And then we get out there, and I was so angry. And, you know, when you're young, you're 19, and you're enforcing a no smoke. I was a militant anti-smoker. Anyway, <laughs> I said to him, who do you think you are? And he answered my question literally. He said, well, I think I'm the son of the president of the United States. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, and, you know, he's technically the president head of the park services. So I said what anybody would say. I said, well, I, I guess I came along a little too strong there. He said, no, you're just doing your job. Good for you. He was a real mensch about it. Well, Tom, I want to ask you, uh, th- there was this poll that came out Wednesday. I saw it, it was conducted by uh, TIPP, uh, T-I-P-P. Uh, and it said that 56% of Americans agreed with the statement that the bribery charges against Biden uh, were likely. 27% said it was unlikely. 39% of Democrats said it was likely. 56% of independents said likely. Well, what do you make of that poll? And this sort of stuff just keeps piling up, doesn't it? It does. And it does seem to be breaking through um, drip by drip, I think. Uh, I was a bit shocked by those numbers, the 39% of Democrats. And again, there's margin of error and and all that. So maybe it's maybe it's not that high, but 56% of independents. And the question was phrased something to the effect that that Joe Biden and his family have received payments from, from folks affiliated with the governments of China, Ukraine, uh, and maybe one other. And so the headline was a little more dramatic than that. Said bribery. There was no nothing about bribery in the questions. Just that that the Joe Biden and his family had received, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of thirty million dollars from from agents of of foreign governments, and and that I think, in many ways, is indisputable. And and even Democrats are saying who are defending the president are saying, look, it may be unethical or whatever, but it's not illegal. What the Bidens have done is not illegal. That is the defense. There's no smoking gun proving any quid pro quo between the president and and his son or any member of his family for any of the payments that they received. And, you know, it's just influence peddling and that's kind of, you know, it's kind of sleazy, but that's kind of the way of Washington. And and I think most people, as reflected by that poll, understand that and, and um, agree with the fact that they engaged in influence peddling. The question is whether is whether Joe Biden, A, you know, lied about it, whether he, you know, ever talked to his son about it. He says he never did. Um, and then also how how much he was involved in potentially enriching himself as the quote unquote big guy who was getting, you know, according to the emails, 10%. The third country was Russia in that poll. It's Ukraine, Russia, and China. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> the thing about it, Tom, you know, I remember this. I hate, I hate to keep dwelling in the ancient past, but when Ronald Reagan gave a speech after he left the White House, after he was president, and was retired from public life and got $2 million for it. it was I think it was in Japan. It was overseas. This was a big scandal at the time. People thought he had cheapened the presidency. This idea that a guy, while in office, while vice president, or waiting to run for president, accepted monies from foreign government, I'm not sure it's not a crime. 
but it's certainly sle- it's certainly sleazy. And you see a poll like this, and I, I think you're right with that that trip 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 analogy. I mean, this is a sobering poll for Democrats. They, they reach a critical mass. They're stuck with Biden, and, and he's no longer a candidate they can sell to the public. This is what we talked about last week. At some point, you'd expect some Democratic office holder, a prominent person, to say, "Hey, you know what? I better get in the race just in case." So, Steve, where's the story go? Do you think at this point you're an investigative reporter? What's going to happen? It'll be, I, I think, more importantly, it'll probably be great fodder for the uh, 2024 um, election. I think that's probably where it's going to head, and they're going to stave off these any kind of action, and they'll, they'll be successful in that. That's my prediction. Uh, obviously, uh, Republicans can make you know score big points. They're going to need them in 2024. If, if Biden stays in the uh, race. Well, let's talk about uh, something else that happened this week, kind of related. That's Christopher Ray was up on the House on Wednesday. So Carl, the New York Post called it a masterclass in stonewalling. What did you make the questions and the answers that were given or not given uh, by Director Ray? Jonathan Turley and some other conservative commentators have thought that the Republicans weren't tough enough on this guy. And he's still well-liked in Washington. You, you notice that because Chris Christie defended him. But there's, there's two things going on that I thought of when I was watching this. The first thing is that, you know, he, he still can't explain in a way that is satisfactory to any Republican why uh, he's, he's treated this uh, whistleblower so much different than other whistleblowers. Byron York wrote about it, I think, in the Examiner this week, just a completely different approach to these allegations. And, and they won't even, sh- they, they showed Grassley, Senator Chuck Grassley, the report, but then the rest of the intelligence committee, the other people, they redacted it. It's, it's very murky what's being alleged. And it looks like the FBI is, is, is stonewalling and covering up. Um, but, but no one quite knows why. Christopher was asked directly about this. And he said, the FBI has no interest in protecting anyone politically. And I, I was thinking about that, Andy. He may sincerely believe that. He, Christopher Ray, may believe that. But I, I don't. I think that the Bureau's uh, animus for Donald Trump is well established by this point. And, you know, to paraphrase the old expression, you know, the, you know, the enemy of, the en- of my enemy is my friend. And so there's a, there's a left, there's a perception left that the FBI is protecting Biden, not because they're, they approve of anything he's doing, but because waiting in the wings is Donald Trump, their arch enemy. You know, that's, that's how it comes across. And the other thing is that Ray, the other thing I was struck by, Ray had kind of admitted, uh, and I guess at this point he couldn't help him, he has to, that the FBI has engaged in this censorship regime. And you would have liked the Republican to just say, you know, flatly, where in the FBI's charter is that even allowed, sir? It's clearly against the First Amendment, in my opinion. And now there's a judge who agrees with me uh, down in Texas where Steve lives. Well, Steve, what did you make of the uh, director's uh, testimony? And, and what did you make of this defense that he was first appointed by President Bush? He was appointed by Trump. He's a member of the Federalist Society. He's a registered Republican. I mean, this is sort of a blanket defense that you hear from Democrats, mostly, that, uh, you know, how can this guy be uh, favorable to the Democrats when he's such a sort of staunch Republican himself? Well, it's true. And I think it was what the only votes against his confirmation were five Democrats, too, I believe. <laughs> he's done what he's supposed to do, but every every piece of evidence contradicts his testimony. And I was particularly interested in, you know, the, the social media contacts and so on. And 
he he was graceful and I thought he was graceful in, in evading some of these questions and never really getting pinned down. And uh, I think that's probably I'd like to see, you know, to push him a little harder. And and I know this is a big, you know, camera op for all the all the questioners and so on and members of Congress. But um, but I think they just got to bear down on this guy, just like you would do in any interview with, with somebody. And, uh, and if he doesn't want to talk, I guess that's, you know, I think that's probably you got to just go around him. And, you know, this is the idea here. Is he supposed to obfuscate? Because obviously he did something that, you know, he's part of an effort to uh, to prop up uh, a, a sitting administration. Tom, what do you think? Yeah, I thought um, along those same lines, I I watched a little bit of the testimony live. You know, I didn't, I didn't think Republicans did a very good job of questioning him, you know, sort of sharply and incisively about some of these issues and and to try and get him and again he's he's very skilled obviously at that sort of and he has the ability to sort of say as he did when um he was asked about the well some of these things are under investigation i can't talk about them which you know is maybe not true <laughs> in some cases some of the representatives are fairly sharp and others are not and they're not you know the ones who aren't lawyers or trained in this um, it is an opportunity seen by many as an opportunity to grandstand and, you know, filibuster and instead of asking questions and getting responses to, you know, make statements and, and try and win social media clout themselves, go viral or whatever. So it did seem that there wasn't a whole lot of news that came out of this. I'm not sure how far the ball got moved, you know, down the field in any on any one of these issues it was just kind of a um a stalemate if you will and i'm not sure what's going to come of it i think that the social media thing was sort of the most interesting part to me and that he sort of admitted that they had contacts which everybody knew but then sort of put out that denial that you know was when we go talk to these people we're just you know giving them our suggestions yeah it's just suggestions Steve, do you buy any of that? Or just no, none of that. I don't <laughs> buy any of that. I mean, the uh, uh, the emails, uh, the communications that have been already put out there clearly uh, point to um, to some serious interference and interactions and direction being given to these social media companies. So, Carl, I don't know what the real consequence of any of this will be, but there is talk of of defunding the FBI's to the extent that they will not allow them to build the new building or occupy the new building and they want to send them out to the hinterlands to real America. Is there something that Congress could do that would help correct the direction of the FBI? It certainly needs correcting, but Congress has had this power of the person of the FBI for forever and they've never really used it. You and I might, you know, think that would be easy. I don't think it'd be easy. I I don't say they shouldn't do it, but I mean, if, if it was up to me, I'd, you know, turn that J. Edgar Hoover building into a public park do- dedicated to uh, freedom of expression and require every single FBI agent to reapply for their job. But I'm not emperor. Nobody in Congress has the stones to do that. Well, let's talk about this uh, article you wrote, Steve. You wrote this week about the GOP's embrace of post-COVID voting reforms. These were reforms that were designed to make voting easier for people during the pandemic, and they've stuck around. Republicans opposed a lot of these uh, at the time, tried to roll them back. 
So tell me, you know, why have they changed course and how likely is it at this point that they'll be able to catch up with the Democrats when it comes to taking advantage of these new rules and regulations about voting? First of all, I think they uh, nationally Republicans started realizing what happened in 2020. Then they lost in 2022. Same thing. It was also, you know, a lot of ballot collection, a lot of uh, using early voting um, and so on. So I think that's when they figured it out. Because as recently as November 2022, the RNC was saying, no, no, we, we do not support ballot collection. We don't support prolonged early voting. So I guess what do we got? About seven, eight months it took them to realize they'd been whooped twice, 2020 and 2022, and that something has to be done. It's probably way too late. Um, the Democrats have spent uh, a better part of a decade uh, putting together community activists and, and uh, nonprofit groups aimed at, uh, at getting out uh, balloting and uh and I don't think uh, I don't I don't think there's there's no room for the Republicans to run. That was what the story mostly looked at is how can you you know is there a way to uh, to salvage this so, you know because we'd already seen stories about how they turned the corner and said oh now we're going to do it. I just don't see it. I don't see it working. And I think we had people in that story saying exactly the same thing. And is that because it's structurally difficult for them to do it? Or I mean, there was a point at which they were the leaders when it came to at least absentee voting, correct? There was. And because a lot of states had have provisions, still have over 65 voters, no excuse, mail balloting and so on. Now, when you when you don't have, you no longer need to be disabled or over 65, and they loosen those rules during 2020. Now you open the door for all kinds of other things. And also the ballot collection laws were, were loosened too. So now you can have anybody, you know, vote early and it's real easy to go and take their ballot to them. I mean, we we saw somebody in Dallas, a democratic operative, she registered, she got mail ballots for 393 voters, democratic voters in Dallas. They were sent to these people, and my guess is they were probably followed up on uh, with a call and so on, um, you know, like, hey, have you cast your ballot yet? And Democrats got really, really good at this, getting these matchback files. So every single day they have a teams assembled to go and visit so-and-so at this address or this residential home or this area because we got ballots out there. These are registered Democrats. we got to get them. Republicans haven't done that. They don't, they don't really know how to do that. And just tell our listeners what a matchback file is, because that was an interesting part of your article. Yeah, a matchback file is something you get, and you can get it almost every day, and you keep a list of how many mail ballots are out there, um, how many ma- mail ballots have been sent. Uh, first, you get the application, then you send someplace you get them automatically. But at any rate, the ballots that are out there that have not been registered as returned yet, and so what you want, if you're, say, a Democratic worker, you say, OK, here's your list and here's so-and-so at this address has received a ballot, but we don't show it being returned yet. So that's those are the matchbacks. You're essentially matching the, the, the file, the ballot was sent to this address. Now you're going back to, uh, to check on it. And you can do that every day. They can do it every day. They have so many people. Well, Tom, is this a problem for democracy at sort of a fundamental level, or are these just the new rules of the game and you better learn how to play? Both. 
I think. We've we've talked about this at some length. I mean, I think in an ideal world, you would have a period of voting, the the Carl Cannon method, right? We'd have like a Saturday a, through Tuesday. Saturday through Tuesday, right? And Monday and Tuesday are a national holiday. And so in exchange for that, there's no early voting, right? There's still absentee. If you if you're infirm or something, you know, you can still send your ballot in. But for everybody else, I mean, in, in my perfect world, you'd show an identification, you show an ID, cast your ballot, and boom, you're done. The parties could, you know, help their voters get to the polls over that period of time, but that's it, right? And then the votes are counted and the results are released on Tuesday night or Wednesday morning, latest. I mean, so we don't have you know, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks of early voting, and then, you know, seven days, 10 days of counting all of these ballots, because it really has, I think, undermined uh, faith in the institution of our, you know, electoral process. And that that's not good. That is not a good thing. We should be able to, to restore it. That being said, I think Republicans have finally come to the realization that, you know, they tried to claw back some of these laws that were passed in 2020. And the Democrats have done a very good job at portraying any effort uh, to do that as voter suppression, targeting, you know, uh, minorities and, and all sorts of, you know, horrible, villainous things. And so uh, so they haven't been very successful in, in some places, in some states they have, but in other states they haven't. And so they realized, I think, that it's time to get with the program. And, you know, the, the first sort of test of this is going to be Glenn Youngkin has just announced in Virginia that they're going to do, he's pushing hard this early voting program for Virginia's, what, you know, he called them their midterms are coming up. And so we'll see if he's able to do that in, in you know, the span of a, a month or two and see how successful that he is at, at uh, in implementing a program like that. And that'll, I think, give you a good idea of, of how successful the Republicans may be next year because they have been pushing forward on this. But to the point, you know, that Steve makes in his piece, you know, they're starting from way behind. They are starting from, you know, it's going to take a real focused, intensive uh, effort over the next year, basically, uh, to get them, you know, anywhere. I mean, I guess the good news is the focus only needs to be in eight states, right? That's where Republicans got wiped out in in 2020, 2022, particularly. And it's all the swing states that we we know these elections. I mean, you know, if they lose California by 30 points, you know, instead of 35 points, like big deal, right? But uh, they've only got to make up a point or two in Arizona, a point or two in Georgia. That in and of itself could be difficult because you got to find these voters, right? You got to make sure you know where they are and then how to get to them, how to badger them and how to get their ballots in. And so we'll see. We'll see if they're able to do it or not. Tom, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that was something I was thinking about, which is that on both sides, we know that it's going to come down to a couple of states, you know, Nevada, Wisconsin, Georgia, Pennsylvania, maybe a couple others. And so you're right in that the Republicans could win those by upping their turnout a little bit. But obviously, the Democrats are looking at the same numbers sure. and they're going to focus on those. So is the problem here, I guess, writ large, that this reduces an election to focusing on these few key areas, getting out the vote in those key areas that can be identified. And it changes the nature of electoral politics in that it's not so much about the issues or the candidate, but it's all about who can manipulate, maybe that's too strong a word, 
the system to get out these voters. Because if a single operative can turn out 400 votes, as Steve says, that's not what most people think of as democracy. Well, you know, Andy, you're, you're right. But the, that's old-fashioned word politics. I mean, we've had it since Tammany Hall. And what the Republicans have decided, because they've been railing against it for 10 years, is, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. And um, Steve's story, which I commend to everybody, I edited it. And I'll add quickly, it needed precious little editing. Thank you. <laughs> it, it points, it, you know, he says it's too late for the Republican Party, but they've got to do something. Now, Pew has a report out, says, you know, in the two, in the midterms, not that many voters changed their minds, that the, the narrative that the Democrats themselves were pushing uh, and the Republicans were kind of ex- acquiescing to, which is that the abortion and these other issues that suburban swing voters changed their minds. That's not quite what happened. And it, what happened, and we had in our site, uh, several months ago by Professor James Campbell, a very in-depth study of this. No, that's not what happened. What happened was the Democrats' ground game. But if you're talking a, a bigger picture, Andy, on the civics here, you know, is there any good Is there any good news here? I, I'll throw out one idea. Yes, these eight swing states every year, they have disproportionate authority in choosing the president and the Senate. But you have these wards, Dallas, where Steve Liz has them, Philadelphia has them, where you have you'll have precincts with a thousand voters who vote for the Democrat for president and six for the Republican. George Bush, George W. Bush in Philadelphia, there were actually precincts where he got no votes. And, you know, that's, that's the way it is in presidential politics. But in these local elections, in these congressional elections, what this does, this new emphasis on the ground game, I think one positive thing could be, it's going to force the Republicans to do much more sophisticated candidate recruitment to get more people of color, to get people who are known in the city, and to not concede these inner cities. You know, you don't you don't want to lose a thousand votes to six because these are statewide elections. You're talking about Pennsylvania and everybody concentrates on the same suburban counties in western Pennsylvania. How about getting a Republican candidate there who can get you, you know, 10%, 20% right in the heart of Philadelphia? So I, you know, there is politics is always changing. And this ward politics, this return to sort of the machine politics sounds sinister, but if the Republicans respond to it, not just tactically, but also strategically and think, you know, what do I want, what do we want our party to look like? We could look back on this and say, maybe it was a positive development. You know, just a quick story. I used to live in American University Park in DC, which is uh, Northwest DC. There was uh, one year, might've been 96, they, it was, they were called the AU8, and that were the eight people in American University Park who, who voted Republican. It was, <laughs> it was real, really a, an eye-opener in terms of what you're talking about, Carl. But, but Steve, so you're sort of a pessimist on the Republicans being able to catch up here. Um, other people do say that it would be a difficult strategy for them to do. Anyway, it's hard to do in suburban areas. Is there another option for them other than trying to take advantage of these new rules? Or is this the only path forward for them, do you think? Well, uh, like Carl says, uh, good candidates would help, and, and particularly in some of the urban areas where Democrats have figured out all they have to do is beef up their margins in the urban areas where their base is, and they're going to overtake the suburban and the rural. And it worked. I mean, they did it magnificently in Wisconsin and, and, and Georgia. And I don't know how – I mean, if I were – you know, if I look at this as a football game, I'm just looking at a team with really, really good offense – and uh, and a team that just can't can't seem to defend against that offense. Um, 
because they essentially Democrats made the process of voting a strategy. And once you've done that and you're good at it, and they knew this, they've been doing this for years um, and just incrementally um, making, you know, refining their game. I, I don't know that there's a way to, uh, to overcome that. Perhaps Republicans will figure out, you know, how to get a good ground game. But even in, in the story, you saw the, the guy from the RNC told me, he said, you know, we tried doing, you know, neighborhood walking, but it's not nearly as effective in suburban and rural areas, um, which makes sense. It, it, it wouldn't be. And so they've got to figure something else out. And uh, I don't know how they're going to do that. I mean, I think maybe you recruit more and more local candidates, you know, things like that. But you got to do it in a hurry now. And uh, and I think, you know, as, as Tom said, we'll be looking at uh, Virginia this uh, in the fall. Tom, uh, Steve used a sports analogy there. You're a college athlete. Is it really the Republicans are deep in their own end zone and they can't get out? Yeah, I mean, it's something like that. You know, I think I think they are behind. There's no question. And they certainly did not have an answer the last you know, couple of, of cycles. They were in some ways not even on the field, right? They were telling their voters to get off the field and saying, you know, just show up on election day. Don't, don't you dare put that ballot in the mail. And so they have to sort of uh, recondition their base voters to actually, you know, mail in their ballots because they've been conditioning and telling them for, for four years or six years or eight years, don't do that. And and now they're taking, uh, doing a 180 and basically saying, look, we can't just you know, show up on election day when we're already down 30 points because of early voting. We've got to get out and we've got to vote early and we've got to vote often. We've got to vote, you know, by mail. Um, and so we'll see, you know, how how far that message penetrates. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's I, Carl mentioned uh, Professor Campbell's piece. And I think that was a real, it was a, it was a great distillation of what happened in 2022, because as he, you know, he went through all these things, all these you know, possible scenarios about what, what had caused the anticipated red wave to, to not show up and, you know, sort of knock them down one by one, that there was some, you know, shift in public opinion. Um, none, none of those scenarios, uh, held up to scrutiny in the end. Um, because if you look at the pre-election surveys, I mean, there wasn't some massive shift the, what was going on, the massive shift was Democrats, pouring all of their money and resources into just a few states where all of these competitive House and Senate races were, and governorships as well, uh, and being able to eke out victories and and really defy all of the historical norms that applied to elections, presidential job approval rating, you know, uh, the inflation rate, gas prices, you name it. Uh, they did not pay a price for those winning independent voters. Um, they didn't pay a price uh, the way that that parties historically have in their first midterm election after uh, taking control of the White House. And, and so I think that's where, you know, Republicans kind of sat up and said, oh, wow, this is a much bigger deal than we actually thought. And um, but again, I, I agree with Steve. I think they're time's running short. I mean, they've got a year, but a year's not it takes a it takes a lot of time to put some of these plays, these these. Um, systems in place, even if you're only talking about eight states, still, they're big states, there are a lot of voters, there's a lot of data to be gathered. And, and we'll see if it was, we'll see whether they have the, uh, the ability to do it or not. 
All right. Well, we're going to leave it there for this week. Um, I want to thank Steve Miller, Carl Cannon, Tom Bevan. We're here most Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. So bookmark this podcast. Come back often. If you're a part of the world that's experiencing this record heat, I have a way to cool down. Go to Real Clear Politics. Read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. It may be Steve Miller's piece, which I highly commend you. It may help you better understand other points of view. It may keep your political arguments at least at a low boil. So thank you for listening. And until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walbert.